another episode Behind the Vinyl with Darren and Nicholas. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good. Finally getting the day started. You know, all that. Cool. (laughs) Sorry we jumped the gun and we tried to call you an hour early. (laughs) That's all right. You know, that happens like all the time. I mean, they... (laughs) They give me, uh, let me see if I can get everybody in here. Yeah, they, they give me a list, and uh, half the time's right, half are wrong, so it's all right. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Good. So we can, we can see a couple of Marshall stacks in the back. What are they, what are they on top? Are they JCM 800s there or what? Oh, um, let's see. Today, everything gets moved around like every second, but I got uh, – my JVM, maybe you see that? Let me. I'm trying that. to get this to be a little bit bigger. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can get it bigger. No, I can't for some reason. But um, uh, uh, so there you go. Hey, there look at go. that. Oh, <laughs> nice. And a, um, and a 5150 as well. Yeah, those are kind of my mainstays. I mean, uh, I use them a lot. And I was working with those two quite a bit for the, uh, the Amplitube suite. Uh, that we were working on for the last year. Uh, they turned out really cool, and they were just based on these amps that I use all the time. And I think that's uh, my original 69 100-watt head. You can barely see it there. It's a great story behind that, because that was stolen, and then I got it back like 30 years later. Crazy. Wow. Was, that the, was that the one that was painted orange or something like that? Yeah. Yes, you know that story. Yeah, you can uh, up close, you can see the orange paint everywhere, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I spent so many hours playing that when I was in the squares in the early 80s. And then uh, our rehearsal space was broken into and they stole it. And I didn't see it again until I was on tour a couple of years ago. And uh, a former uh, fan who uh, used to be in the Bay Area and now uh, lives up in Oregon somewhere, uh, just came to the uh, VIP meet and greet and said, hey, take a look at these pictures. I swear this is your amp. So... <laughs> I, uh, he gave me the amp. I gave him a guitar, and uh, and so and then I put it to use right away. I think that was right around, right before I started working on Unstoppable Momentum. I think, or uh, no, Shockwave Supernova. So it started, it, it got back into the album fold. So after that, and then uh, that's a '71, also real screaming, you know, '71 head. I've been getting rid of a lot of the old stuff. I mean, I, I must have had twenty or thirty old heads and uh, you know they're like owning jaguars or something you know you gotta <laughs> fix them all the time every time you take them out of the garage they don't work and it, you know so um i just said you know I, I if i look through all the notes that i keep for all the albums it's really just a handful of amps so i just thought it's time to uh make more room for uh, artwork and and get rid of some of these heads let someone else play them see what happens so there you That's go. Cool. <laughs> cool. We we talked to um, uh, Mike Frazier, uh, the the ACDC engineer. Yeah, and um, yeah. He, he was telling us uh, an ACDC story about how they used to ship in all their heads and guitars, and they'd have to go through them and and try them all out. And they did that for a couple of albums, but they were always settling on the same two guitars and two heads <laughs> or something. So yeah. after, after a couple of albums and, and wasting like a week or a week and a half. They kind of said, "Can we just bring over?" They marked him and said, "Can we just bring over these amps?" And for ever since, I've just been bringing over those same guitars and heads. 
It's amazing. And Mike is so patient. I mean, he's really a wonderful producer as well as a, a genius engineer, but as a producer and a, a manager of musicians, which is like herding cats, you know, he's really good <laughs> that way. You know, he'll give you the space to try everything you want to try. And then he'll kind of nudge you towards like what obviously is going to work, you know, but um, <laughs> I'd love making records with him. And we, we've done a lot. I mean, solo records, chicken foot live, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, He's great. So um, thanks for uh, thanks for joining, Joe, for uh, behind the vinyl. Um, yeah. We kind of yeah, figured, sorry. yeah, and we, we figured it's it's the perfect time to uh, dig around in uh, surfing with the alien and really get in there. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I dug out these. I actually had uh, an original surfing with the alien unopened. Oh, oh. really? Yeah, and when we had to do. Uh, when, we, when we were forced into coming up with a new cover, uh, you know, I went back and I looked at all the vinyl. I realized some of them are silver, some of them are white, some of them are sort of like a gray silver. And, uh, and the red and the blue and the yellow, forever changing. I mean, you know, people forget vinyl production was, let's say they spent maybe 50% of their time really following what the end product was like it was you know it, people have this sort of uh mythological view about how wonderful vinyl was but i mean it was treated so horribly and the artist was forever complaining that the pressings sounded so completely different from country to country from territory to territory the yeah. colors of the artwork were all wrong the typos uh you know shrink wrap causing warped records uh, it was just Stuff that you don't think about when you just say yes to a download and, and there you go, you know, yeah. 96K, beautiful, no skipping, no scratches, no yeah. warping. But it was cool that we were able to do this and all that. <laughs> that that's yeah. cool. That's cool. I, I've got uh, mine here. I've got the, yes. my copy here. It's looking a little bit tattered and torn. So there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple of things we're going to ask you about. Well, well, the artwork as well. 
one thing to start off with this classic picture. Um, yes. <laughs> which is great. Who is that? <laughs> All right. So here's the story. So I'm at, um, I'm in Philadelphia. I'm at Robert Hakowski's studio. Great photographer and a very good friend of Bill Rhyme, who was the art director for Ibanez. Eventually, he became president uh, before uh, leaving the company about a year or two ago. But um, Bill is a great friend, great drummer, artist, uh, visionary. And so, but there I was, not knowing really what to look like, and I, I couldn't care less, really, you know. I had this sort of bohemian attitude towards the whole guitar magazine thing, you know. And uh, so we're downstairs in the studio all day, way too much makeup, hairspray, you know. I keep telling the guys, look, I'm not I'm not this guy. I'm not ready for show business at all. I'm just a guitarist, you know. <laughs> and so we had a good time. We were just laughing at me and, and ourselves. And then at one point we said, you know, we should go on the roof just to try to take one last couple of shots. So I had a thrift store uh, raincoat that I had dyed black a couple of days before. And I said, okay, I'll put this trench coat on just for fun. We go up to the roof. It's like 100 degrees because it's summertime. It's July. It's uh, really hot, really humid. And we're up there and we took, I think, three pictures because it was too hot. We're on a tar roof, you know what I mean? So I'm up there you know, doing that pose that you reminded me of <laughs> and, and sucking my cheeks in, uh, d doing my best to, to uh, do my Zoolander imitation. And, uh, <laughs> and so I forgot about it because it was so hot. We all just laughed and we went downstairs, didn't think anything of it. They never used the photo. And then uh, as the, uh, the expectation for good business started to sort of happen within Relativity Records, they said, we need a really, like, rock star picture, you know. Mm. And, and the, the president of the company had already told me in front of the entire uh, office there at Relativity Records, the first time I went there, he said out loud, he said, well, you don't look like a rock star. And he was, he was truly, like, concerned. <laughs> like, what, what have I done? I've signed this guy, and he, his hair's all wrong, and he's, you know, he doesn't look like Steve, you know. So... And uh, so anyway, uh, they picked that picture and I just, you know, I thought it was so funny. They, they printed it in black and white and, you know, it was, it was just me making fun of myself. And, um, but there it is. And I'm holding a guitar that I never played. I mean, I never used it. <laughs> it was just like, you know, I got there and they said, you got a guitar? No. And they, okay, can you hold this? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know, that kind of thing. So there I am holding this guitar and uh, and it went on to you know people kept telling me when did you, you what song did you use that guitar on it was like well never so there you go it's hard to, <laughs> sorry sorry to screw up that story for everybody but that's you know I I've tried to tell people about it and they just can't believe it they think we you know people assume that we figure all these things out ahead of time and everything's just the perfect the way we want it but of course it never is <laughs> yeah well but those, those times. Uh, I'm just thinking like the, the 80s were so different and and there were a lot of fun. Uh, do yeah. you miss those days? Do you miss those times? The good old 80s? 
Well, you know, every age is great. I mean, it really is. And, and there are always challenges and, and uh, there were super challenges back there for lots of people around the world. In my little microcosm, you know, the, I was in a, in a situation where the band I had worked to death with, you know, had just folded up and I was looking to do something different. I didn't know what. And the instrumental career kind of fell in my lap by accident. I wasn't pursuing it. But every time someone said, there's this opportunity, do you want to do it? I'd say, well, I'll try it. You know, I'd always warn them, like, I'm not ready. Don't have a band. You know, like when those pictures were taken, when that record was recorded and released, I had no band. I had no experience playing my instrumental music in front of an audience and being the center of attention. It was just something I'd never done in my entire career. So uh, it wasn't like I was ready. <laughs> for show business, you know. So, I, you know, the naivete of the moment was fun. And I wish for younger players today that are so amazing that they could do what we did, which was to pile into a cheap bus and play two shows a night at every little club that would have us around the U.S. I mean, that's what really broke me in the U.S. was being able to show the fans our true personality and our talent and the songs and have fun with them. That was basically it. We'd go to a bar that held 400 people and we play two sets and we play until we couldn't play anymore. You know, our fingers would hurt, you know, and our clothes were soaked and everyone had, uh, you know, enough to drink and went crazy and it was fun. And we just did that, you know, seven nights a week and we just knocked ourselves silly doing it, but it was great fun. Uh, and, and so I do, I kind of miss that for today's young generation that is sitting at home looking at a little green dot like I am thinking, <laughs> you know, I'm going to post this and then like magic's going to happen. It's like, oh, you know, it's, it's sad. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to talk to you guys and the technology is great, but there's nothing like even though it's really hard and it's, you know, it's probably bad for the environment to drive around in a bus and, and, and do all that kind of stuff. Um, playing in front of people is where it's at. That's what it is. People need music. We're musicians. We're supposed to play music for people. Anytime something gets in the way of that, it's all screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, put it, definitely. Uh, speaking, going all the way back there, um, well, let's go first, uh, not of this earth. Um, when when did you, like, what, what was the deal like which you signed with uh, Relativity? Was it two-album, three-album deal? Oh, no, that was what they called a P&D deal. Uh, I had my own label and publishing company. So I had Rubina Records, uh, yeah. and I had Strange Beautiful for Music. I didn't have a manager, uh, and I went out and I got a lawyer. <laughs> uh, Ned, Ned Hearn. Uh, uh, who was doing Wyndham Hill at the time, you know, which is, it was just down maybe about an hour from San Francisco. Um, and I think it was, uh, it was Cliff Coltrary from uh, A&R guy from uh, Relativity who suggested Ned because they had dealt with him before with a few other clients. So uh, I was really prepared. I'd read every book there was on controlling your assets as a solo artist. So uh, I went in pretty heavy-handed and said, look, I've got the recording. Here's the album artwork. I get all the publishing. I paid for everything. You don't even have to give me an advance, but 
you know, production, distribution, that's it. So it took a year. I mean, and that's why from 85 to 86, from November 85 to November 86, I had to work. So I was out on tour with the great Kin band, uh, and, uh, an American uh, rock and roll band, uh, while I was, you know, every week talking with Cliff and the guys at Relativity trying to get a deal. And they finally released that album in November of 86. Uh, less than a month later, I was in New York City playing at the China Club with a pickup a trio. And I showed them live in front of the whole company. They rented out the whole club, the, the China Club in Manhattan. And, and I showed them what I was working on, which was uh, Satch Boogie and um, Crushing Day and a couple of other songs. And uh, it, I think it was Satch Boogie that convinced uh, Barry Coburn, the president, to sign me for a couple of albums. Uh, and it included what I told him I wanted Surfing with the Alien to be, which was a celebration of all my influences uh, and upbeat sounding, not, not dark, you know, uh, demon guitar music drenched in reverb <laughs> not, not ready stuff i kept saying i can't play like marty friedman and you know those guys you know it's like uh, I, I, there's something else i want to do but he didn't like anything that i said until i played for him that night so it was really an audition in a way uh i had danny gottlieb on drums and mark egan on bass uh neither of those guys really were into what i was doing at all they're brilliant jazz musicians uh, but we, we literally went over charts at four in the afternoon in the club and, uh, you know, and then we played at like seven <laughs> that was it. All right. <laughs> so wow. that was the, that was the deal. And then they promptly lost it within a year. They lost the artwork. And so that's why the not of the earth had a different cover for a while. Um, yep. Yep. but it was, I mean, that record company was crazy. I mean, it was just, you know. Have you ever been to the, the industrial area of Jamaica, Long Island? I, you guys probably wouldn't have to go. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> just an industrial wasteland. And they had this one-story brick building there before they moved to Hollis, which is another, back then, was another challenging neighborhood. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, all the people there worked so hard. And, you know, I, I owe them a debt of gratitude because they worked really hard on an absolutely impossible long shot, which was me playing instrumental rock guitar, you know. <laughs> um, but I suppose we all of us really didn't know what we were doing, but we we were good at, at those one singular things. I could play, those guys, do, you know, they had a department, they knew how to call radio stations. Other people, you know, they had to, back then they had to deal with rack jobbers and distributors. It was a strange, semi-illegal network of musical distribution a lot different than it is today it was it was not as wild west as the 60s but it was still it was kind of like even though it was the 80s it was still the 70s <laughs> i don't know if that makes sense <laughs>
Well, then you start recording this record. So um, a couple of things about this. From what I understand, you got, originally it was like $13,000, right? Which, I didn't get it. I, that was the budget. So every that every $800, $1,200, I have to call on the phone and get it sent ahead. And people would wait until the check showed up before they let me back in the studio. Right. I mean, yeah. there was no, I mean, you have to understand there was no faith in me or what I was attempting to do. You, you have to imagine going to a studio and saying, I, you know, I want to record an instrumental rock record. And, you know, people would say, what's that? It's not even a genre. You're crazy. So yeah. that's, I mean, you know, part of the getting the not of this earth recorded was that I, you know, the story is I was turned down. I tried pulling every favor I could and I couldn't get anybody to record that. And I literally drove home dejected, opened the mailbox and there was a letter that had my name on it from a bank I never heard of across the country sending me a free credit card with checks with $5,000 credit. Of course, I believe the interest rate was 19.75%. I kid you. <laughs> this was the 80. This is something about the 80s no one wants to see again. No. That's interest rates, right? So uh, today there's zero. People have no idea what it was like to try to borrow money back then and what, what you would pay. And um, But I just got on the phone right away and I said, you know, what if I paid you in advance? Would you give me a discount? Would I get like 50% discount or something like that? And everybody suddenly was like, money? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Joe. <laughs> so it was a good lesson to learn. Money talks. And uh, no matter what business you're in. Uh, so that's what I did. And I maxed out those, you know, I, I think I spent uh, $4,999 and couldn't pay it back until I got that call from Greg Kent. In, in late 85 week, you know, suddenly Rubina Records was solvent, meaning me, because <laughs> I, I hadn't, they paid me in advance to do the album and promised to tour with them for a year. And uh, I was able to solve that issue with paying off the credit card company for the, not of the surf debt. And then I, you know, then I could approach Relativity as like a successful <laughs> A uh, record company owner with a product uh, that wanted a P and D deal. Uh, so naturally, when we when we get to uh, do surfing with the alien, they've only just released Not of This Earth like a month ago. So there's not like you know hundreds of thousands of units that have been sold, and they're just like in the in, you know in the black, thinking, oh yeah, let's give Joe a big budget. They still did not trust me one bit, and uh, so. Uh, they they said, okay, this is your budget. You send us the bill or you tell us who to pay ahead of time. They didn't want to send the money directly to me. So I had to get Hyde Street, John Cunaberti, anyone that I rented gear from to basically invoice relativity and then, then they would get paid. 
And then I, I realized we went through the money so fast, $13,000 renting a real studio with real tape machines. You know, it, it was all analog. So this is expensive. And uh, uh, we wound up, uh, because we're in the Hyde Street building, I don't know if you've ever been there, but the Hyde Street building had three or four studios in it at the time. And there were people in there all the time. There were some people who stayed there in some of the smaller rooms and they had uh, production companies. And I would basically just barter with uh, Michael Award, the owner of the studio, because he had his own projects. I do sessions for him. He would pay me in studio time. Uh, Sandy Perlman was uh, producing uh, Imaginos uh, for Blue Oyster Cult, and he was in the same room we were in. And so what he did was he said, OK, hour for hour, if you give me three hours fixing guitars on Imaginos, I'll give you three hours in the room later on in the week. And so that's what I did. I, I think probably half of the budget, because we spent in the end around $29,000 of cash but there's probably an equal amount of time that I just worked my ass off doing session work uh, for everybody in the building who would, you know, either lend me uh, an emulator for three hours, you know, at no cost because I gave him studio time or, or uh, studio time itself, like with Sandy. So, uh, yeah. yeah, everyone worked real hard. They, I don't think Relativity truly appreciated how we broke our backs trying to deliver that album to them. You know, it was, it was hard work. Yeah, wow. yeah. I've heard stories about like, um, like the rhythm section for for the for the title track, "Surfing with the Alien," that you literally did that in one take, and that's why people were outside basically knocking on the door saying, "Hey, you're, this is our studio time." Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, it was actually I was doing. I had showed up to do the melody basically the melody and then the end solo because the, the middle solos were to be different. But my idea was that the melody, the singer, so to speak, would play the melody, the chorus, uh, stop for the solos, play the melody, and then play the out solo, kind of like the way a singer would sing on a song, you know. Yes. And uh, you have to know that I had refused to play a wah-wah pedal for years. So it had been like six years where I just didn't play a wah-wah pedal. So then... I show up at the studio that at that you know that day, and I'm holding it up, showing John, and he goes, "No way, right?" I said, "Let's just try it. Let's see what happens." So, Wawa pedal, Chandler tube driver, uh, a Marshall uh, that I had at the time, seventy-one, I think, uh, hundred watt that Todd Langer had did some modification to, and uh, we plugged it all in, and and we're looking for a sound, and he, there was the old. Was it the Eventide 949 or something like that? It was one of the very early Eventide harmonizers that was still there. And I'm, I'm kind of pointed over here because the, the gear that would be behind us in Studio C was something that might not be there for three days or four tops because the owner of the studio would get gear in and then he'd turn it around and sell it. So if you wanted to use a piece of gear, you had to print the effects if you had some extra tracks, it was insane. It was like every time you recorded, it was like practicing some kind of audio triage. You had to give up like the, the tambourine track, you know, so you could record the reverb because the reverb unit is being sold two days later and you, you know, you're not back until Thursday or something like that. So we get this sound and we hear the stereo sound and the, the unit itself is not behaving properly. So it keeps changing its parameters. 
plus 11, minus 11 cents. It's gone back and forth. And I, I start to do the track. These guys literally, the next clients, they walk in and they're literally standing in the doorway with their arms folded, like hating what I'm playing and just going like, hey, dude, it's four o'clock. Like, you know, <laughs> we're already here. It's our studio. And I just pleaded with them, let me just do like one take and just so we have this sound. And that was it. And then we never, and then the unit broke. Then it was sold. We had to break down the gears. We didn't have lockout time back then. It was too expensive. So w- w- the next time we got in the studio, we listened to it. And it was like, well, we'll never get that sound again. So and we can't fix it. Guitar's a little out of tune. It was the Kramer Pacer, which never stayed in tune, yep. ever. So we just thought, well, okay, that sounds like fun. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's do the <laughs> solos then. You know? so that's kind of like how we did the record. And, and we would do it for a few hours, maybe twice a week. And, th- and then we'd wait three weeks until we had money to, to do another couple of hours. You know? So that's why it took so long.
think it would have been a a, a a different record if you hadn't been under that kind of pressure recording it? I don't know. There's there's no way to tell, really. I mean, I think every artist, you know, thinks that if things were different, you know, that they would have turned in a better performance. But I think the real experience people, I mean, if you ask Paul McCartney, he'll probably tell you, hey, you know, going into the studio for four days with a head cold, that's what made that first Beatles record, you know, sound amazing, you know. Or, you know, we were rehearsed and they captured it and, you know, we had a conception of what we wanted, but the engine, the the producer, he heard us the way other people heard us, and and I think that's the the key. It, I think it's really hard in my case because you you know, uh, Glenn Johns once said to me, you know, you you have to decide what side of the glass you're on. <laughs> are you out there with the musicians, or are you are you in here with me? He said you can't be two places at once. It it just doesn't work. And I understand that completely. And so I've, I've learned over the years that, you know, you can you can sit there and, and believe that you're right and everybody's wrong. And, and you know, that if you'd only had a million dollars, you could have, you know, recorded The Wall or, or you know, uh, Thriller or something like that. But actually, once you get into the stories behind all the great albums made, it's all a, a chaotic mess. <laughs> and you just, you know, you know, that story behind Eddie Van Halen playing on uh, Thriller is so funny, right? Or it's, what is it? Beat it. Uh, beat it. Yeah. Beat it, right? I mean, just the fact that he took, they took the tapes. First of all, they send him the master tapes and, and they edit the two inch tape just so Eddie feels more comfortable with the chord progression. And they send it back. And then Quincy Jones realizes the Simpty's so messed up. Now they can't sync anything up. They have to re-record the song around the solo. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, you know, and Lukather had worked on that. You know, it was a, it's probably perfect. And then they say, oh, by the way, thank you. It was perfect, but you got to do it again, all over again. And it's got to be different to Matt, you know. And so there you go. And, and the tuning's a little bit funny on the track, but of course, you know. And people love that and, and millions and millions. And you can imagine, though, the hours of people screaming at each other once they realize what had been done to the master <laughs> tapes. So um, I just think that's funny, you know, and, and uh, there are so many records like that where they had to get remixed at the last minute because, you know, Axis Bold as Love went missing, had to get remixed. Uh, Exile on Main Street. Someone came, took the tapes. They had to remix the entire album. No one's found the original mixes since then. So, I mean, there's just some crazy stories out there. It's, you know, the good thing about it is that Analog was not so, uh, when things went wrong, it wasn't so definitive. This this record, okay, so this record, we, we went down to master it the very first time at Bernie Grumman's. And I got there and Bernie turns to me and he says, oh, that's kind of funny, but... He goes, you're kind of like three or four dB off left to right. And I, and I was shocked. And I looked at John. I said, that's impossible. I said, you and I stared at those VU meters hours and hours. This is our masterpiece. How can, how can it possibly be? So he, John calls up the studio and says, do me a favor. Go up to Studio C, put in a sign tone and tell me what you see. Turns out 
they had been aligning the board incorrectly. <laughs> and so the first side of surfing with the alien was off. It was all, it was to the left, right? And I, I was like beyond furious and I threatened to sue the studio for everything, you know, I, unless they led us back to remix side one. And that's what we did. And, and the record company thought I was nuts and everyone was very upset, but we drove back, <laughs> couldn't afford to fly back. So we had to drive back to <laughs> San Francisco for like eight hours, of, you know, feeling pretty shitty. And, and anyway, but we got in the studio and I thought, how are we going to recreate this magical thing that we thought was so perfect, but we have to remix it. And again, there's no recall. It's not digital. It's not like you just turn on Pro Tools and there's your mix exactly the same. It's all hands on dials and, you know, John and I leaning over the console, looking at each other. Now, left, right, on, off, you know, <laughs> cutting tape with razor blades and all that stuff. So, yeah, so side one was was remixed. There you go. <laughs> Turned out okay. <laughs> there was a lot of drama there at the, at the finish line. <laughs> Crazy. Can you, um, like you talked about, you played, you basically demoed like Satch Boogie and a couple of other tracks. Can you remember which ones you started to record first off the album? Um, we did, um, uh, let me see, uh, I'm trying to jog my memory here. I definitely, we had uh, Crushing Day was a definite. Um, yeah. Uh, we must have the Satch Boogie was live I think believe it or not I think we may have done like there may have been a bit of echo like a, a, a version of echo on there and uh, maybe Hill of the Skull I don't know why that was there I mean that was that's not like a, a song they would have understood um, and, and perhaps we had a version of always I'm not really sure that's a really good question but I don't need I don't think I have like, it would have been on a cassette and I don't know where that cassette would be. That isn't something I would have saved at the time because once we did that live performance at the China club, it didn't matter. You know, they, right. and we, we realized we want, we just always thought we'd go back and start from scratch. But I think we kept uh crushing day 
um, which I don't think had a solo on it. I think it was just the melodies and the, you know, and, and a drum machine guide track or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, but I think the rhythm guitars we kept cause they sounded so interesting, you know? Um, and we, we, we didn't hear anything like that out there in, in rock or metal. So, you know, that particular guitar tone. So we thought we should keep this It might be hard to, you know, duplicate. Yep. Love it. <laughs> um, drum talking about drummers uh such boogie again was literally that such boogie was the only one you had a drummer right uh, a full drum kit that would be right yeah and the way that that happened was that it, it was really an interesting artistic a gut-wrenching artistic decision but i had always thought that jeff would come in and he would replace all the drums on all the songs Yep. And John Coonerberry felt the same way, like it's going to be great once we get rid of this drum machine and, you know, we, we put this thing on. And uh, the only person who didn't believe in it was Bongo Bob because he would always pull me aside and he'd say, you know, you're never getting rid of that drum machine. He said, there, and I'd be like, why would we keep it? And he said, because there's a thing, you and the machine, they're doing something. You can never replace it. And I just thought he, you know maybe he was jockeying for the you know the programming position i wasn't sure why he felt that way but i was since i'd played with jeff for like you know six years at that point i just seemed so natural that he would come in and play so we spent a week we wasted a week believe it or not i say wasted not i said the money was wasted the experience was important to go through but it was pretty bad because for jeff because he came in and he played really well on all these tracks. And John and I realized that what Bongo Bob was talking about was really that the unique vibe of me playing against the machines was somehow lost when the real drummer came in. Yep. It, there was like an edge to it that didn't happen. And, and I guess I had played around it. I guess I had played so much to the attitude of the machine. Just the fact that, you know, machines have this way of just being so repetitive that the way I danced around it created a style. And that when someone else came in and kind of danced around it, the click, like I was, that it kind of took the shine off the guitar and it, it, the, it took the attitude out of the instrumental. And it just sounded like Jeff Beck or Montrose. And they had, you know, they'd already done great stuff, but it had that groovy feel. And, uh, and, you know, it was the, the mid eighties and everything. And so we, we were thinking like, well, why would we go back to that seventies feel? Um, and, and the music isn't like that, you know, and the guitars were largely recorded as well. So we couldn't re-record the guitars to Jeff's groove. We didn't have the money for that. So at the end of the week, I said, Jeff, you're going to hate me, <laughs> you know, once again, cause I, you know, quit the band I'd started that he was in with me for five years. I said, okay, once again, you're going to hate me, but I, I think we're just going to go back to using the drum machine as the main source, but we'll ask you on every song to replace the Tom Toms, a hi-hat crash cymbal. So that's kind of like what he did. So like, you know, with Ice Nine or, or, uh, or, or Crushing Day, you know, he's playing like half the kit. Right. And, you know, to add some, some because cymbals back then, those drum machines, they sounded horrible. And so, you know, John, I don't know how he did it, but he got Jeff's live bits to, to mix with what Bongo was programming on the drums. 
And, uh, and that's how we did it. And sometimes, you know, we went all the way and had Jeff just play the entire kit with Satch Boogie. That kind of worked because it was a swing song. So everybody swinging kind of made sense. Uh, with a song like Echo, which had a repeating pattern, which was a crazy idea just to have a machine do the same thing over and over again. But since I was already listening to early hip hop, I just thought, why not? Like millions of people love hearing a two bar pattern over and over again and, <laughs> and a lot of stuff happening on top of it. That's that's random. So I said, let's bring some of that attitude in. And the three of us went out into the room twice and recorded live stereo uh, improvised percussion. We, we had a big table and we laid out maybe 20 pieces of percussive instruments out there. You know, a wood block, maraca, just bells, everything you can think of. And uh, Jeff and I were out there standing by the table. John would push record. He'd run out from the control room, get next to us on the table. And we, we would literally like, you know, we would walk along, let's say here's a pair of glasses, right? And we shake it in front of this thing and then we kind of put it down and I would step around and I'd go over here and I'd pick up whatever John put down and I, I would sh shake it and Jeff is over here doing something. He'd put it down and we just did that and as an experiment and it worked because it created this percussive back and stereo performance that never repeated itself and it sort of blended with this repeating pattern that was very satisfying because it just it, it gave you what you wanted to hear for that five four it was the thing that you could depend on while the guitars and the percussion were you know sort of dancing around the beat you know? it, was, it was a lot of fun
How did you end up working with uh, John? Because I understand that he had been working with uh, Eddie Money's band, uh, stuff yeah. like that. Uh, did you know each other like way back or? Yeah, we knew each other right at the beginning. Uh, we met in 1980. So I, I started this band, this power pop band called The Squares right. in 79. And we started gigging in 80 and, and worked through 95, uh, 85. Uh, but really from the beginning, uh, we did a gig and John was mixing somebody. Uh, it may have been the, the Great Kin Band, I'm not sure. And he had transitioned into being a front of house engineer. And uh, we didn't know it at the time, but he was building a studio with a, uh, a local musician called Dan Alexander. And that was a studio called Tewksbury in the Berkeley Hills in the, in the Bay Area. And um, so anyway, John approached us and said, man, you guys are really great, but you sound horrible. <laughs> you need a front of house engineer. I'm, you know, I'm available. And uh, so we said, great because we loved what he was doing, you know, with a great Kin band. So he became our engineer, you know, uh, mixing us live. And then he obviously, when we realized we needed, you know, what we wanted was a record deal. So we had to make demos and, and he was our guy. So he brought us into Tewksbury and uh, we, that was probably the best set of demos we ever did was that very first uh, four, four song uh, EP, uh, It just had all the energy. We were young and we really were focused on what we thought was really cool. We were wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> we were 100% enthusiastic, which is the key element. Uh, we, but I'm sure everyone was looking at us like, man, those guys are crazy. But uh, we really believed in it. And uh, But yeah. But the record companies didn't, so that's a whole other story. But that's when I got to know John, and 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 I really was uh, com a complete novice in the studio. I'd been in recording studios before, but I basically would just, you know, they'd tell me to sit down and what to play, and I, uh, I had no experience at creating art in the studio. And and John was like that. He he could hear. He had great ears, still does, like an audiophile, and he was very meticulous uh at recording um and uh and and extremely opinionated and great ideas which is what you want you want a little you know little of this going on to to get the creative juices flowing uh and he would uh somehow he got us recorded and and he kept those things sounding so good that we were able to re-release them last year which is pretty amazing <laughs> that's cool it's cool that is great um I've got a question for you. Um, I've heard that all the solos are improvised, basically improvised um, when you're in the studio. Can, yeah. that, cannot, that, you, that can't possibly be correct. Now, well, uh, if we look at Surfing with the Alien, the, everything was, in fact, improvised except for Crushing Day. That, that was the only song that uh, it was the solo section was so long. And, uh -huh. and I was feeling like, I don't know if I can sustain interest that long you know that in a song where the rhythm section is so repetitive yeah. i mean if you got along you know if you're dealing with 64 bars or double that and the band is doing stuff you know then then i think it's cool then you can you can you, it sounds like to the listener like something's happening right. like it was an event in the studio you know 
Um, but I didn't write the song that way. And I certainly didn't record the rhythm section that way. Everything was like so damn tight and repetitive. And so when we got to that point, it wasn't like, um, like uh, the, the previous record, there was a song called Memories that had an equally long solo. Uh, but that was really, that was really a funny kind of a thing. If I could digress for a second, because I, I got to the studio to record. That was the first solo to record for that record. And John had no idea what I was going to do or, or how, you know, he'd seen me playing the squares for years, but, but didn't know really what I was up to with this solo record idea. So three hours later, he's like, you know, he's pulling his hair out and he's saying, are we going to do this for every song? Because your budget isn't big enough <laughs> to spend three hours like uh, on every solo. I said, you know, this is something that should take five minutes. And I said, no, you don't understand. I am like just throwing stuff out there and I'm composing the solo to be the ultimate statement of the meaning of the song. And so once he understood my artistic approach, he realized that I was, he was going to have to sit there and record me over and over again until I heard something that represented something that I, I was, you know, had inside of me and that I was going to have to punch in and add. So the, the, that solo for memories was improvised, but it was punched in because I would play, you know, 23 bars and then I'd say, Something else has to happen. I don't know what. So punch me in there and I'll continue the story, you know. So uh, we did that a lot over the course of all the records we made where we, I was given the freedom to compose the solo uh, as if it were a melody or an extension of the melody. But um, uh, for, the, for the surfing record, that one song obviously was the complete antithesis to Satch Boogie or uh, or, or the title track where, you know, I knew I was going to start the solo, you know, for surfing with alien with a little pick trill. I didn't know what I was going to do after that. I just kind of knew it was going to be kind of Phrygian dominant Phrygian have some fun, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and we would, you know, John would stop me if he, he'd say, man, that was great. I'm not recording you anymore. I don't care what you say. You know, <laughs> Uh, or if I said, man, that was great. And he'd look at me like that sucks. I'm, I'm going to make you do that again. You know? <laughs> so there's a lot of that, but this particular song I showed up and I said, I don't feel like I can, you know, this style of music, which wasn't exactly my style. Maybe I should say that it was, you know, it was a bit like, um, it was a bit like the heavy metal that some of my students were listening to in a way at the time, you know, which was, I was really a bit older than that, you know? Um, and so, but I, it was attractive to me in terms of how it would sit on the album, how it would balance out the album. And although I like this song, I just, I realized, okay, I got to work this solo out. I have to at least go, I start over here in eight bars. I got to wind up here and I'll do this thing. And then, after I do that thing, I'll improvise as long as eight bars later, I get to that bit and then I'll get that bit. So I kind of laid it out for John and I said, okay, this is what we're going to try to do. So, you know, that's, that's how that solo got started. I mean, you know, it's got that rehearse hammer on pull off kind of bit in the beginning there with the, with the rhythm section stabs. And then it goes into a lot of scale work, but I, I really wanted to do it again. And I tell you, I was sitting in a hotel room with Steve I once uh, 
before the record came out and we were listening to the album and, and that was the he called her right away because he knows me you know like a book and even back then and he looks at me he goes sounds kind of worked out joe <laughs> and it was like <laughs>
Well, speaking speaking of you know Vi in particular, like you went to school with Vi. Um, you taught him guitar back in the day when you know when he was kind of just beginning, right? And um, well, and, he was twelve years old, so he, he was twelve years old. Yeah, yeah. And you were only like a year or two above him, really, in regards to playing guitar. Yeah, right? all, yeah almost three years older. I just turned fifteen. Uh, yeah, I was just about to turn 15, I think. Um, and he'd seen me play at a high school dance. And I think I was teaching one of his friends, John Sergio. Um, and, and yeah, so yeah, he literally showed up at the house. He didn't live far from me. I mean, we were less than a mile away. Um, uh, and, uh, we, we grew up in this teeny town in the middle of Long Island, but, um, yeah, he had a guitar, a stringless guitar in one hand and a pack of strings in the other. He's like, can you show me how to play? <laughs> it was great. It was so exciting. He was so good. He learned so fast. I was, it was impossible to keep up with him. It was really exciting. And it was a good lesson for me to learn early on. Because, you know, when you're, when you're in high school and you've got friends who think you're great, you just think, like, I am great. <laughs> and all it takes is a 12 year old kid to show up at your door and you go, Oh, maybe I'm not so great. <laughs> maybe that kid's greater, you know? So it's, it's a good lesson to learn early rather than, you know, when you're in your thirties or something like that. So um, you bounce back earlier when you're young and, and, you know, with music back then there was, you know, there was, because there was no internet, there was no cable television. It was really, super old school days back then uh, there wasn't a lot of rock that you could see and so it's really hard for little kids to actually see rock musicians play guitar yeah. you had to go to concerts you couldn't go to clubs you know maybe once a week some kind of rock music was on television that was about it so um we felt like it was really hard to get information you know to um to move forward but the good side of it is that we had a lot of uninterrupted time to sit and just play by ourselves or with each other. So, yeah, after, you know, I'd say two years of lessons, Steve and I did a lot of literally sitting with our backs against each other in the backyard if the weather was nice. And we would just improvise and we would just sit there without amps and we would just play and just see where we could go. We wound up as sort of like comrades, you know, it's just like... We both wanted to become amazing musicians. We had no idea really how that was going to work. And then, of course, we wanted to be rock stars because we were, you know, young kids from Long Island. Yeah. <laughs> we wanted to change the world. So, you know. Love it. What, what, was the first, like, what was the first, like, major concert you ever went to? Um, I went to see there – was, there was a um, – a place that I actually played for the first time last year on the, the experience Hendrix tour uh, called the Westbury music fair. And it was a theater in the round. Uh, it's like most of those theaters in the round, they only hold about, I don't know, 1500 people, uh, maybe 2000. I, I don't really know. Um, I think I'd been there before my parents had taken me to see some sort of musical theatrical thing. Um, but the late 60s came, the world was upside down, and, you know, I was the youngest of five kids. And so by the time I started to prowl around, my parents had given up controlling children. You know, they'd been through 
four and then there was me and they're like okay play guitar do whatever you want you know that kind of thing so i lucked out <laughs> and i but i think the first con within two weeks i went to the westbury music fair the first time was to see uh the band chicago which at the time was called the chicago transit authority and had this brilliant guitar player terry Kaff. he was playing that night uh 335 against a marshall stack this stage is so tiny and it's circular and he was literally was standing up against his marshall stack but he sounded amazing he sounded just like hendrix the next week it was jethro tull uh just fantastic those those two shows were great um i really love them um and then i think after that it was the fillmore east i went to see steve miller it was right after hendrix died uh, and Steve Miller was playing there. Um, yeah, it was just you know a thirty-minute uh, subway ride into Manhattan from where I, I grew up. So uh, we were in the city all the time. And yeah, the Fillmore was a great place to see shows.
just going going back to Vi a little bit, there's obviously, you know, he also brought you two Relativity records as well. Um, yes, how, yes. How was it like when you actually played him this record? When you played him surfing with the alien, when you sat with him and played him, you know, hey, this is my new record. You'd, you'd had moderate success with Not of This Earth. I'm guessing he'd had moderate success with Flexibility, uh, or, or Flexible. Um, yeah, yeah, because yeah, Passion and Warfare wasn't out yet, right? Oh, no, no. It was very different. <laughs> you know, what had happened was in 85, uh, I sent him uh, Not of This Earth. He knew that, that uh, you know, that um, I, I had my own label and everything. And, and so he said, this record is great. What are you going to do with it? And I said, well, I'm just going to put it out, you know, print a couple, put them in the trunk of the car and drive around like I did with the last one. And he said, he goes, you're not going to believe this, but there's this company in New York who is agreed to do a P&D deal with, with Flexible. And he said, none of this earth is nowhere near as weird. He said, so they, they would love this record. And I said, well, if you, know, if you want to send it to him, fine, but it's okay. Don't, you know, don't sweat it. I just, I'd given up interfacing with the real world. You know, I was just doing my own thing. So he said, well, there's this guy, Cliff Coltrary. He's a, you know, a guitar player too. And, and uh, he's a really cool guy. I'll send it to him. Can I give him your phone number? That kind of thing. Anyway, Cliff calls me up. He loves the album. And he says, we just opened an office in LA. We should meet. So uh, Rabina and I drove down to LA and we, we met him. And he really spent the next nine months working Barry Coburn, the president, you know, twisting his arm into uh, agreeing to release the album. And it really took a long time. It took almost nine months before they agreed to put it out. Um, and, and that's why we talked about that earlier interview. Interview. It came out in November of, of uh, 86. And within a month, we shook hands to do surfing. And surfing had already started, the recording, you know. So, um and then around that time, you know, Steve was with David Lee Roth because I think when I went to play in the album, he, it was he was on David Lee Roth tour, uh, right? That would make sense, right? The same yep, same absolutely. year. Yeah, uh, I haven't thought about that in a while, but I do remember we, we were in a, a hotel suite that at the time he would have afforded being with David Lee Roth, and I wouldn't have. A <laughs> <laughs> guy who just you know. Uh, you know, was putting out a record and get and was getting ready to go back to teaching guitar. I, mean, I, I should point out that you know, John and I love this record, but we both felt like we were going to do what we want. No one's going to tell us what to do, and then we'll go back to we'll crawl back to our jobs, and at least we'll have this album that we did it, and we can say we did it. We can, you know, years go by, we'll look back and we'll say, yeah, but we did it, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, when they when when the record comes out and Barry calls me and says, uh, you know, you, you're, you're on the charts and you're going to have to go out on tour. And I said, Barry, I don't have a band. I don't even have an act. I said, I don't know how to walk out there and not sing. I said, I've been singing and playing guitar, you know, forever. So he says, well, you know, got to do something you know, get someone together. So, you know, call people. What about those guys you played with a few months ago in, in Chicago, which he met Jonathan Mover and Stu Ham. You know, we, we met, we played and that was it. You know, we, there was no rehearsal or anything. It was just a crazy jam. So, um, but that's how that whole thing got started. 
That's a, it's a whole other interview, you know, <laughs> <It's> because <laughs> I put that band together. I go out on tour. It's successful, but it's really a disaster. It, believe, you, you know, the music business, those two things can happen simultaneously. <laughs> and then I'm, while I'm out there trying to figure out how not to lose eight grand a week uh, on tour with a, with a successful album on the charts. It was, it was so incongruous. I get a call to audition for the Mick Jagger band, which, you know, in the one way would it seem like it was derailing my new career as an instrumental guitar player with a record on the charts. But on the other hand, it would stop me bleeding $8,000 a week on tour. You know, <laughs> it was, we couldn't sell enough tickets to pay for the bus and the hotel and the, you know, and the flights and all that. So, um, yeah, so I had to do that. And, and I was so lucky that I got that gig. It was, it was a great turn of events for me. Yeah. Well, you said, you said the, in interviews that, the album. that, that Mick was, that he was really gracious and he like really um, really rooted for you and and uh, and everything. Yeah, he thought it was so exciting. He obviously had been there a million times, you know, and seen people come and go, and he knew this was it. That he was like, "This is the moment. This is the record. You're at the right place at the right time. What can I do?" And that's literally what he said. I mean, word for word, what can I do to help? You need somebody, you talk to him, he'll give you, if you need like a room to do an interview, whatever, can you play a couple of songs in the middle of my show? I mean, it was, that was pretty incredible. And, and he kept it up the whole year because the album stayed on the charts for the whole time that I was out with Mick. So, um, and, and it was really great. His album didn't do as well, which was weird, you know, <laughs> it was kind of weird at times, you know, and, um, but he was just, you know, every time it would move up on the charts or it would, it would be another week and it would still be a 29. He'd come over like we were having dinner or something. And he'd say, Joe, this is amazing. You know, this is so great. Congratulations. But, you know, make sure you keep hammering it, you know, take advantage of this. Uh, so it, it was re it was really great. Uh, and uh, and uh, I owe him a lot for that. He, he really showed me the, the right way to be the right way to behave. You know. Well, that's kind of fascinating. I'm just thinking that, as you as you said, that he'd he'd been through it all over and over again. Enormous yeah. success in one of the biggest yeah. bands in the world, and he still he still seems like uh, you know like a regular guy that just really cares for someone else. Uh, well, first of all, he's not a regular guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, he was born to be Mick Jagger. He is like superhuman, really. He, I mean, he he's a, a really great person, team player. Uh, he had the insight, the empathy, uh, but at the same time, the enormity of his talent and his personal drive. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it since, to tell you the truth. Uh, I, I've never shared the stage with anyone that gave so much of himself every single night, no matter what gig it was. And, and we played clubs and we played the Tokyo Dome. You know, I mean, we, we played huge places and he just loved giving everything that he had to the audience every single night from the beginning all the way to the end. It was, he was like the team, he was like the quarterback, you know, that was also should have been the coach in a way, you know. And, but the funny thing is, is that at the same time, 
he was so funny to hang around with because he was such a, a mischievous kind of a person. He somehow blended that, you know, like rehearsals were barely rehearsals because he just liked to fool around. And if he heard something that was fun, he'd just go do that. And he'd say, oh, we'll get to the rehearsal part later. Everyone just do your parts. Don't screw it up, you know. And But he expected everybody to show up at the show at 100%, 100% of the time. He just had a great work ethic, had a, a million ideas, all pretty much great, you know. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he just, he opens his mouth and I've never heard a louder singer. Maybe, well, you know, in a way, Sammy Hagar and, and uh, Michael Anthony, they got that volume thing. Sammy's voice is like as big as a freight train, you know, it's so all encompassing, uh, but mixed voice is big and loud and he can project and his timing is so interesting. Uh, really, really great. Um, yeah. The, the, anyway. the funny, the funny thing about that is, um, um, I was really into the album then. Um, you know, the the surfing al- uh, album, and my mother, who I had never ever heard of going to a concert, and never have heard of since, she went to Mick Jagger and she got to see you play with Mick oh, Jagger. Really? Yeah, in 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 Brisbane, Australia, and I was really dirty. I can remember she went with all the soccer mums, and you know, it didn't really it didn't really mean that much to her. And I was like. God, man, you get to see Joe Satriani. Um, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty funny. And then wow, it took, it that's... took you years to to come back. Then I think you, I can't remember what album it was. You come back, but it took you another good three or four years before you come back for the first time to Australia by yourself. Well, we we actually we came. We did a a thing in ninety, right, and then. Um, I think Paul Dainty uh, gave us a, a run in 90. It was short. I mean, all of them were short, even though uh, the surfing was a, a, a platinum record there. Um, it's, there's, a, there's a thing people don't realize, and you know, it changes all the time, but sometimes record sales or back in the old days, TV appearances and popularity don't necessarily translate to ticket sales. And sometimes ticket sales w- way outstrip the presence in the media or radio presence, you know, which is, you know, like recently, like, you know, tools record, you know, going to number one, you know, I mean, with that, without being in the public eye and, and, and without being zeitgeist of the moment, whatever, you know, suddenly they come along and they prove to everybody, no, this, this band has an audience and they they love them and they're waiting for them. So, but with Australia, I had this perfect introduction and the album was received really well, but we never rose to that level i think where we could tour australia the way that we tour europe and the u.s and uh that's the question everybody every entertainer asks themselves every time they do a tour which is you know hey how come you know we're not selling out cleveland but we're selling out philadelphia and you know how come we can you know go to scandinavia but we we you know we can't play greece and and slovenia or vice versa, you know, but bands are always trying to figure that out. They just can't figure it You know, if you could figure that out, how to be popular everywhere, it would be so much easier to book a tour and to plan for, you know, profit and loss. But, um, yeah, you never know what the audience is going to like city to city, town to town, and which album they're going to like. You know, yeah. like, uh, yeah. I put out lots of different sounding records, and you think, you know, it's 
people are going to say, okay, we've had enough of you. That's too weird. You know, it's too different. And then there's like, wow, Indonesia. It's like, you know, they absolutely love that album for some reason. You don't know why, but you go, okay, thank you. You know, thanks for <laughs> listening. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, we love playing Australia, but I don't think we've really ever played any place bigger than we did, you know, in the last 30 years. We were always playing theaters when we go there. Yeah. Um, we play some better theaters, you know. Uh, and once in a while, you sell out too, you know, if it's Melbourne or Sydney or something like that. Um, uh, but that's okay. I mean, you know, someone asked me once, you know, like, what's your favorite gig? And they expect you to say the Royal Albert Hall or Madison Square Garden or something like that. And I think, you know, that really what it is, is it's the gig where you play the best and where you notice that people liked it. And so if it was that little club in Hanover or, you know, or, or the, or the, you know, the, the gig that was tacked on at the end of an Italian tour or something where it was only 400 people or something, it doesn't really matter. It, it, um, you know, you can go out in front of a hundred thousand people and just like not feel it. It's yeah. weird. It's just the strangeness of performance, and you know, ultimately we're we're all human, and there's a lot going on in everybody's head and and their emotions, and that's how we remember things. That's how we experience things. Um, not like the audience, you know. I mean, you mentioned Eddie Van Halen and, and Beat It and, and that solo and so on. When when Van Halen, when the first album came out, was that the same thing for you as it was for so many others? Uh, did you start tapping right away and try out stuff like that? Or what was it like I've for been, you? Yeah, I'd been tapping before that. I mean, I right. think just like Eddie, because we were same age and, and started playing pretty much the same time. Uh, we saw other people on television doing it. So I saw right. the guitar players in, uh, in Wishbone Ash. There was a show in America called, uh, what was it called? Uh, Midnight Special, I think it was right. called. Yeah. Don Persher's Midnight Special. And I think Wishbone Ash was on one night, and, and uh, I think my dad was watching it, and I just walked into the room for a second, and I looked, and I, I see the guy, ding, playing with his finger, and I'm like, oh, my God, I just like, went right up to my room, picked up my guitar and went, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that all over the place. So, you know, we were, my group of friends and every, everyone was tapping, but the great brilliance of Eddie was what he did with it. And that's what you could say about everything. You know, we knew the same chords. There's a million guitar players that know exactly the same 12 notes the same chords where you buy the same strings we're using the same guitarist pretty much you know so what makes eddie so special why did he why why did that genius just say well i'll take that and just do this with it and but he did and all of us responded you know like it was godsend you know and the first 
time I heard Eddie was when Eruption came to the radio and I was sitting there with my guitar just jamming along with the radio. And yeah, my jaw dropped and I put my hands down and I went, oh my God, I'm in the presence of greatness. This is like, now that that guy knows how to use things <laughs> that I know. It's like, I got all the tools laid out on my table just like him, but wow, look what he's doing with them. You know, it's, it just made me smile. I was so happy though. The other part that made me so happy was because he played so aggressively and so melodically the whole song, you know what I mean? Like it was a whole Eddie Van Halen world that he would show you. But it was fun. It was rock and roll. It wasn't perfect, you know. It wasn't pretentious. It was still like, let's just have fun. And I thought, I need to like get everybody that I know in this town to like this because... This is going to be good for all of us guitar players that really want to play. Because there was an attitude at the time. I was feeling like people were telling us, slow down, don't play so many notes, you know, <laughs> no feedback, you know, make try to make your guitar sound like clean guitars from the 60s or something like that. And there, there was just this, you know, we were waiting for somebody like Eddie to come along and just like reinvent it. Um, and, and, and he did. He did. He was really, truly great. Cool. Nice. That's great. Um, hey, we we can't um, we can't talk about the album without talking about uh, always with me, always with you. Um, yeah. But possibly the definitely where I when I grew up, it was the it was the breakout song. It's got a bitch of a first chord in that rhythm section. You know, going back to that, you know, it's it's such a big stretch. Um, yes. <laughs> but um, what what a great song! And I think one thing that really sets surfing aside. Uh, from a lot of the other, and, and not to name any other guitar albums or, or instrumental albums, but Surfing's really got songs, you know, really, yeah, it really yeah. does. And, and Always With Me, Always With You is definitely, it's a bonafide, you know, it's an instrumental, but it's a bonafide song. Uh, talk us through that a little bit. Well, um, the funny bits, well, you know, the album had two other songs that were supposed to be on it. One was like a punk thrash metal thing called Dweller on the Threshold. A version of that wound up on the Time Machine album. I truly, when I played it very quietly to myself, it was the chord sequence and the chorus was, to me, was groundbreaking and beautiful. But I realized most people would find it very disturbing. And in fact, every time we worked on it, I could tell in the room, everyone was like, like I hope he doesn't put it on the record, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so we didn't. And the other one was a song called Time, which I just couldn't get uh, uh, Jeff to understand what I needed at the end. And I got kind of discouraged with it. And uh, I thought, okay, I'll just, you know, I hadn't really thought about saving tracks, but I think it was John Cunaberti who said, why don't we save it for the next album? We kind of laughed because we thought there is no next album. They're going to kick us out of town as soon as we, as soon as we hand in this one, it'll be like, see ya, you know? So, um, I, but anyway, so those 10 songs did represent, I think the best, uh, full compositions. Um, I didn't really think always was going to be so successful. It was Bongo Bob who kept saying, this is, you know, this, this is going to be, your single it's going to be your your the one that everyone points to and i was like really I, I didn't really i didn't see it that way it was a personal song to me and i 
I thought I was putting it on there for myself. And um, now when we went to track it, I showed up that day fully expecting to reproduce my demo, which had the, the rhythm guitar chords were drenched in delays and chorus and everything. And I start playing and uh, it was so funny. It gets repeated very often when we work together, but John's looking at me with a funny look. And then he finally says what I, what I can tell he's going to say, which is, I'm not going to record that. <laughs> and I go, wow, what's wrong with that? And he said, well, there's no way to mix it. There's all this delay and echoes and everything. And he goes, can we please just like, can we just get a direct guitar sound? And then we'll think about what to do with it later. And I was like, you know, I was thinking, oh, that's going to take the fun out of it, you know. So I, I agreed, okay, I'll do it really dry. I'll just, you know. And of course, like we get through the next hour or so of putting down all those things, you know, and then he starts to show me like, see what happens when we add this and we add that. And, I, and you know, it was one of the many times where I realized he was the smart one <laughs> that could see ahead, you know, to mix. I was just thinking like a guitar player, which is every time I played, I wanted to make magic happen. And I wasn't really thinking that I might be digging a hole for myself at the same time. But, uh, you know, a, a a, a producer that's thinking ultimately they have to mix something they're always preparing and they want to make sure there are options. And, and, and as I was new to recording, uh, I was lucky to have John there to, to have the foresight, you know, of, of how to record me. Um, and so that worked out really well because, you know, that the other thing that was interesting about it is that we had Jeff Campitelli playing a full drum kit on that song. And the night that we went to mix it, we just couldn't mix it. It was like the, the clean rhythm guitars that John had suggested worked out really well. All the little nuances of the melody, you know, editing basically out a lot of notes that I had played worked really well. Um, we had tried other bass players. The bass player from uh, Counting Crows actually had come in to play uh upright bass or fretless bass that didn't work and then so we wound up with my p bass and and an electronic bass uh playing together um but we couldn't figure out where to put the drums and so ultimately i took all the drums out and i said what if there are no drums except when the festive part comes we just add the kick drum and that's it and it was like one of those moments where they everyone's like that's not gonna work you know <laughs> but <laughs> I said, let's just try it, you know, and then we all listened to it and was like, wow, now that's a special, you know, that's a, a special recording that, you know, when you put it after the first four songs on the album, it kind of, it's kind of a relief, you know, I, you know, when you think about Crushing Day and Ice Nine and Satch Boogie Surfing with the Alien, the Hill of the Skull, this song suddenly can shine all by itself because it doesn't, it's not trying to be a rock band it's just being a beautiful song by itself so once jeff heard that he went okay and then he went out and he added symbols uh you know with, with john put up some stereo mics and he did some really beautiful uh work so it, it took a while for us to see conceptually how the song was going to wind up eventually it did take a lot of creative work a lot again a lot of teamwork cool it's a wonderful song. It really is.
Albums out there. I was just thinking because um, uh, Don Airy uh, said the other day that he plays bass on on Judas Priest Painkiller, and it wasn't uh-huh. credited for it. I mean, are there albums out there by artists where who who you've played on but you were never credited? Uh, stuff like that. Oh no, I don't think so. I think I've been credited for everything. I mean, yeah. Uh, even Crowded House, I sang backup on vocals on six songs on the Crowded House first album. That's so, my my favorite credit. <laughs> yeah, so which which songs did you sing on? Because that, that album is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal record. Um, we knew the producer, Mitchell Froome, because he had uh, passed on the squares. Uh, and But uh, he came close. He was very interested in us, but ultimately knew that we sucked. <laughs> but I guess he... <laughs> He kind of liked what Andy and I sounded like together. Uh, I'm not a real singer, but I was was taking lessons at the time, so I could hit notes and remember my bits. And uh, the lead vocalist in our band, Andy Milton, had a beautiful, soft, wide, kind of Elvis Presley-sounding voice. Um, And together, uh, he had a normal register. My register was kind of limited, lower. And I guess... Mitchell didn't want, they were in LA producing this record and he didn't want to hire the same vocalists that were on everyone's record at the time. You know, you you just, whether it was Steely Dan or Motley Crue, it'd be the same, you know, session singers would come in. So he called us and, and, and I, I like to point out, it's the only time I've ever been paid to sing. And so it's, <laughs> it's a gig that's close to my heart, you know? And, um, 
and so we spent just a day, two days uh, at some studio. I can't even remember where, uh, right in West Hollywood. Um, and uh, Andy uh, uh, doubled all of uh, Neil Finn's parts on six songs. You know, the, the main, all the, all the singles, to tell you the truth. The dream is over, all that, and hey, you know, all those tracks. And I sang with a drummer who hated me for I don't know why, just didn't like me. But <laughs> we we had the same register, so he and I were staring at each other, you know, for hours, and we're just singing the same parts, the low register harmonies. And um, uh, I think he was happy to see me go eventually, but that's you know. <laughs> That's the story there, you know. Um, but yeah, most of the other stuff I do, uh, people always stick my name on there. And, and, you know, I've been signed to Sony for a really long time. And, and Sony's really always great about letting me play on anybody's record. I think the funniest one I did was um, uh, the recent uh, uh, solo record, uh, Spinal Taps, the bass player. I, I don't want to say, you know... Uh, uh, and I was you get into the real names there, but um, uh, there was a those guys sent me um, a track that had a freeform drum solo by Greg Bissonette, you know, and um, uh, and and so you know, and, and Harry Shearer had this really funny concept album, you know, uh, about you know finally the bass player Derek Smalls from Spinal Tap is is going to come out and do his solo record after all these years. Um, uh, but it was really a lot of fun because I just sat there and I'm thinking, you know, uh, I can really do whatever I want. You know, CJ, the producer told me, look, we're just going to send this to you. You do whatever you want. Just go crazy. And so I turned it into this seven string guitar drum solo ensemble thing. Um, and it's something I'd never do on my my own records, you know, which is what I what I like to do best. You know, I've, I get called to do a lot of solos for people, and I I kind of give them what they expect. You know, they want me to be Joe, you know, and 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 use the whammy bar and all that kind of stuff like that. And, I, and I'm cool with that. Uh, it's you know, it's a I think that being a, it's important to be a professional musician and and to give to to do the work well when people are willing to pay you to do something, you know, and, um, uh, but this one, you know, obviously this one was gratis and, and, uh, uh, Harry is, is amazing. And, uh, and his character, Derek Smalls is, is even more amazing. So, uh, yeah. So sometimes <laughs> I, I think, uh, the blue oyster cold, I'm not sure I'm really credited for doing what I did on there. The thing is, is that I'm not really sure what they used because the nature of my work was so weird. Um, they had, that record had something like 200 reels of tape of songs and it was being put together without the band. So I'm not sure why. So I never met the band. I was just in the studio um, with the producer and the engineer and, you know, I'd see, you know, a note, get real number 86. And it would come, you know, I'd wait there and it would come in. And uh, Sandy would say to me, okay, you hear these chords like right here? Could you just do those? Just do it in time and in tune and like that. And, you know, I would, I would play these chords over and over again. 
but I should it would it would be simple, but the way that Sandy would monitor would be so loud. I mean, like I don't know, 130 decibels, just like frighteningly loud, that the speakers would go thermal and turn off, and this would happen every 20 minutes. So what should have been a 30 minute session would be four <laughs> hours, midnight to 4 a.m. And I'm just trying to do A minor F to G, and you know, I. <laughs> I go through the pattern ones, you know, and we just sit there and take a break and then come back and do it again. Um, so I did that and where I just repaired really nice guitar work that had been done by the band over the course of years, apparently. And they were and he was trying to piece together this record. When I finally heard it, I thought, well, this is really a nice record, but I, I can't hear myself. I know I'm everywhere, but I'm nowhere. And that's, I guess, to... Sandy's credit, he didn't want to spoil the sound of the band. He just needed to get things fixed because, you know, tape fell apart or, you know, the, the, it was a demo scratch part. And the band never got to do the real part or something like that. Wow. I, Dude, I think my uh, name's on the album, but not not like song for song. You know? <laughs> a, a guy you've worked with and uh, who I think never gets credit enough for his singing is Michael Anthony. Tell oh, yes. Michael well, Michael Anthony is great to work with. You know, he, because he was a horn player in college, he's, he's, you know, he's got music in his brain. He can see and conceptualize music mentally where, you know, most of us who learn on an instrument, we think of it graphically on our instrument, you know. And um, uh, so he never makes mistakes, first of all, in the studio. And so much of... The chicken foot stuff is recorded live, you know, the rhythm section stuff. And, and there's a lot of live recording, a lot of writing on the spot where you have to write something and then quickly record it. And um, he always sounded great, always played great, which was great. And it's that musical head. But the singing, I just would warn you, anybody out there, if you if you're ever near him and there's casual singing going on, make sure you're to the side Michael Anthony, and not anywhere <laughs> in front of the sonic boom that is his voice. He he has got this super loud, super pure beam of a of a vocal sound that is frightening. And uh, this when the, he and Sammy would get together and they you know do some double tracking, triple tracking background parts, really something just wow. Uh, there's a track called uh, Something's Going Wrong uh, on the Chicken Foot 3 that's really beautiful, uh, the, the way they did the background vocals on that. And uh, it really is something. Of course, the Van Halen tracks are pretty amazing. Um, there, was a, there was a funny couple of times in the studio where you know we'd like to do everything together, so we would very quickly do a song and record it, and maybe write a new section, record it, and then Sam would want to do some vocals here and there. And so we'd all get around the mic and start singing, but invariably it would always turn out the same way. I would be like this far away from the mic and then Chad would be like here and then Sam would be like three feet away and then Mike would be like 12 feet away. <laughs> the, the engineer was would listen to us and go, you guys, are can you sing at the same volume? And it'd be like, no, it's like no way. 
we have to put Mike in the other room. Uh, <laughs> he was so loud, you know, and, and the only way to get my vocal presence was to get me to like be very close. Right I have mic. such a soft singing <laughs> quality. Embarrassing. <laughs> we would sitting down like writing songs and Sammy would say, well, sing what you think the melody should be. And I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I did that. <laughs> I'll play it for you. <laughs> Um, we're going to let you go. Just um, uh, one or two more questions about the album art. I've seen you. You're holding up the. Um, you're holding up the. No, the new art. Exactly. Yes. There's there's that Ibanez guitar again, which wasn't played on the record. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Magic. Absolutely. Now, um, talk here, us through here, that. The Silver, so- Silver Surfer isn't there, obviously contractually now. In uh, 87, in the summer of 87, the album's done, cassettes are floating around. I did my first interview with a British journalist who loved the album, and, but at the end said, I really don't like the title. And if, he just didn't like the idea that guitar players would always go mystical all the time for some reason. Lords, lords of Karma, right? Lords, lords yeah, of lords, Karma. Yeah. yeah. So I called up Jim Kozlowski, the production manager at Relativity, and I said, we got to change the title. And I, I looked at everything and I said, what about surfing with the alien? That's funny. I said, yeah, it's sense of humor. It's, let's, let's not make people think I'm, you know, I've got white robe on and a beard and, and uh, you know, playing these guitars on the mountaintop or something. And, uh, and his response was, because Jim was like six foot three and long platinum blonde hair was, we should put the Silver Surfer on the cover. That was his namesake, his nickname when he used to be a radio uh, DJ. So I didn't know what the Silver Surfer was. And so for the next couple of weeks, he educated me on the comic strip and the character. Uh, he was a, you know, a comic book fanatic. He knew casually the people at the Marvel office, which was just down the block from his apartment in, uh, in Manhattan. So he went down there and sold them on the idea of reviving their dead in the water character because there was no movie or anything like that you know they it was just languishing there and he said look this this record you don't have to worry about you know uh vulgar lyric sticker you know which was the big thing at the time in the in the 80s the uh, boy was called the pmrc or something like that um so uh you know uh they went for it and i think the license was like five grand for 10 years or something like that and uh, anyway, so every time we'd go to, to redo the license, uh, it would magically cost a lot more. <laughs> and, and then uh, two years ago or two or three years ago, they, they came back to us and said, oh, by the way, you know, license that artwork, it's going to cost you. And the number they gave us was so funny. You know, they came up with it just to run us out of town they just didn't want us to ever come up with the money so they figured that he can't possibly pay this amount no one would ever do that to to add to the fee they also stipulated that i give them give three songs that they could do whatever they want with it was like you know they really wanted me not to say yes so of course we said you know forget it you know uh, we don't need your stinking album cover, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, because you know, and because most people see the album cover about this big, right on their on their uh, digital music streaming service, and so uh, we came up with the idea of uh, what, what we found out first of all is that the only thing that's copyrighted, I think, is the surfboard. Which oh right, was interesting. I, yeah, yeah, we could have really stuck it to him, but we said, okay, we're playing kind of nice, but um, so. We kept the colors and, uh, uh, you know, a, as a sort of a nod, an homage to all the original artists uh, that, that worked on the character over the years. And um, we came up with the idea of using the chrome guitar coming out of the hand of Galactica, sort of. Not, not exactly. No hand, you know, no. but, um, but some kind of a blue abyss. And, uh, and we, you know, it was a long process. What we found is that is really hard to get the the feeling of the guitar coming at you like the surfboard because you don't have a guy with his hands like that you know because yes. you, you see that and you go action you know and but here's it was very that was the hardest part getting the colors together you know um todd galapo at meat and potatoes just amazing work he did it just up close, this thing looks so great. And then from some gig, I don't even know where that came from. I think it was the gig on Long Island, but I'm not really sure. Um, colored vinyl. And then because of this project, I kind of warmed up to the idea of the backing tracks. I hadn't really wanted to do that for decades. Um, yeah. Only because I, I just really felt like those were truly like my babies. I'd spent the most amount of time and money on the backing tracks and i thought this you know once you give them away they're just going to get disseminated and used and abused and you know it's it, it's i felt funny about it but uh i don't know something clicked and i thought you know what new cover it's been long enough <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> people have reconstructed the album already anyway on their own and uh so uh, and that's what led us to do this which was the the stripped, you know, which mm. comes out in a little bit. Nice little USB chrome guitar with uh, th with three records uh, backing tracks on it. So um, it, that's been great. That's been a great campaign watching the other amazing guitar players just shred me to death with all their better ideas. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I think I've seen Steve Vai and um, uh, who else? Bumblefoot, Sammy Hagar did something. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's great seeing Phil Collin from Def Leppard. It's great seeing yeah. their interpretation of uh, of it, or, or their, you know, adding their touch to it. It's it's great. Yeah, and there there are some uh, in the phase two that we started a couple of weeks ago. Um, I wanted to make sure there were more uh, guitar players that maybe are you know under the radar a little bit who just the technical facility is so amazing, and I, I really. I really applaud that because, you know, it, it's really hard to be a great guitarist. It's a difficult instrument to play. It requires so much effort and concentration. And today, guitar players do not, are not, they're just not in the spotlight. So opportunities are not there for them to show what they excel at. And, but they're still there. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the young geniuses are out there whether they're 10 years old or 20 or 30, they're there and, and they can play all kinds of music. Uh, uh, but they can also do stuff that, you know, an older player like myself just will never be able to touch because they've, you know, they started 
the first thing they ever heard was Bumblefoot or Steve Vai or something. And so that was their, their step one. Starting point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like insane. Me, it was Chuck Berry. So you can see, you know, the progression. Uh, so anyway, I just, I just want people to hear them and, and, and they should let them know that, wow, that you guys are amazing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Thanks. Um, Joe, thanks for your time, man. It's been an uh, absolute pleasure. Uh, and yes. An amazing record, you know, really, you know, still, still, it's like hearing eruption these days when you hear Serpent with the Alien or Satch Boogie or Circles or Always With Me, Always With You. It's, you have that same feeling when you, you had eruption and still this many years later, it's just like, fuck, I can't believe he played like that on Serpent with the Alien or something. It's, it's great. <laughs> Well, oh, well, it's so great that, that people still like to listen to it. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased. So thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Excellent. Elliot. Elliot. And, and, and thanks for your time. This has been a great interview. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Wonderful. Great to talk to you guys. All right. Stay safe and well. All right. You, you too. as well, mate. You too. You as well. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. Cheers. 